0: episode number 177 of the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I am your online editor and host, and I also help take care of social media. And if you're hoping for a break after PDAC, I'm not sure if the financial markets are going to give you one. It has been very intense the last, I'd say, two weeks, but particularly yesterday, that 2,000-point drop in the Dow, And uh, yeah, metals are all over the place, and it is pretty tumultuous. There's a lot of uncertainty out there. I think the coronavirus really is at the core. I mean, people were talking about how the oil shock was what precipitated yesterday's decline, but what precipitated the drop in oil. And I think we could say it's probably not enough demand for that oil, and now people would still want to get rid of their oil, particularly if their economy is very reliant on it. So we have an apparent fight between Saudi Arabia and Russia. But is that a cover just to take down the U.S. oil producers? Who knows? The moral of the story is there is a lot of uncertainty out there. But what a news flow that's coming out. There's also a lot of news flow in the mining industry. We have a big Supreme Court of Canada ruling on indigenous lands. And how they are not limited to provincial territories, and what that means is, if a Indigenous group brings about a lawsuit to court, they don't need to refile that in each province that their land might cover. Uh, they can basically just do one lawsuit, and that will take care of, say, Quebec and Ontario, for example. They don't need to file separate lawsuits in each jurisdiction. So that's a pretty big ruling, I'd say another ruling in favor of the indigenous leaders. And so, yeah, I mean, I always say, don't forget Bill Gallagher in that Resource Rulers interview, I believe was episode number 121 or 122, maybe both. Bill Gallagher has been waving his hands on this, who's a lawyer, for years. And uh, I remember five years ago, he had a book and I think we had an article in the Northern Miner. I don't know if we interviewed him or he wrote an op ed. This is a massive issue. And despite all the coronavirus stuff, this one is huge. I mean, let's not overstate it. It doesn't really change that much. It basically makes it a little easier to start lawsuits. But when we go into that article, which we're going to, it's our top article here, uh, we're going to see just the extent of the ramifications of this. Because if you want to get aggressive now, from, uh, you know, as some people like to do with lawsuits, there they've basically, the Supreme Court has really enabled a whole kind of new level of conflict to occur here. And so there are big plans as a result of it. So anyways, so we have that. Our feature content is returning back to Mark Bristow and Barrick, a First of all, people love the Barrick stuff. We're getting a lot of plays on the Barrick stuff. Mark Bristow was the keynote speaker at PDAC. There were three keynote speakers, and he opened it. So we're going to feature these keynote speakers on the show. And so today we're going to do the first, and so we, have Mark Bristow, and what he is saying is something we just touched on on a previous episode, and it's this idea that the gold industry is teetering on the brink of a production decline. So he addresses this directly. And he also goes into Barrick's strategy and also their methodology for combating this and for becoming a world-class mining company. So that is coming up. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can also find us on Twitter, at Northern where we have a ton of action going on in the last few weeks. I appreciate all the retweets. And again, if you tag us in Linking a story, if it's uh, reasonable text, we're, we're eager to retweet that stuff. So feel free to tweet away if you see a story you like. Also, if you want to find us on Instagram, you can find us at The Northern Miner, And we are also on YouTube, where we have begun to host these podcasts, and on LinkedIn and Facebook. And also, you can get this podcast wherever podcasts are available. On to the news. And turning to our first big story here by Kelsey Rolfe, special to the Northern Minor, and she wrote another huge one, which is our headline for the PDAC issue. And she comes up with another one here. A recent Supreme Court of Canada decision has confirmed the right of Indigenous communities to sue companies for Aboriginal title claims that span provinces without needing to file multiple lawsuits. The ruling on February 21st is the latest development in a years-long attempt by two Quebec Inu groups to sue Rio Tinto and its subsidiary, the Iron Ore Company of Canada, for a violation of their Aboriginal title rights. The communities claim the company's operations were built without their consent. The case is clear to proceed in Quebec's superior court, after multiple attempts by Rio Tinto and the government of Newfoundland and Labrador to dismiss or significantly amend it. The Innu of Ouachat Mak-Mani-Utanam and Matimakouche-Lak-Jean are seeking $900 million in damages and a permanent injunction against the company's operations in Quebec and Labrador which include multiple open-pit mines near Sheffinsville, Quebec, and Labrador City, a railway that cuts through northeastern Quebec and Labrador, and port and industrial facilities in sept ile Quebec. In a 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court dismissed an appeal from the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. The province had sought to reverse a 2017 Quebec Court of Appeal decision that agreed Quebec has the authority to rule on the case. Even though it involves jurisdiction outside of the province, the highest court agreed with the Quebec judgment, finding the aboriginal rights and title are sui generis, rights that defy any recognized category, such as civil or common law concepts of property. We have a couple of quotes from the justices, which are worth looking into, because, I mean, it's a pretty big issue for this country in the last... You know, 10, 20 years and even longer. In the decision, Chief Justice Richard Wagner wrote that jurisdictional rules should be interpreted more flexibly in Aboriginal title claims that involve multiple provinces to ensure Indigenous peoples are not prevented from asserting their constitutional rights. The quote, honor of the crown, Wagner wrote, requires reducing the costs and complexity of Aboriginal rights and title litigation. Quote, where a claim of Aboriginal rights or title straddles multiple provinces, requiring the claimant to litigate the same issues in Supreme Courts multiple times would erect gratuitous barriers to potentially valid claims, Wagner wrote. This would be particularly unjust when the rights claimed predate the imposition of provincial borders on Indigenous peoples. Interesting. So he is saying... Chief Justice Richard Wagner is saying, because the deals that were made preceded provincial borders, that in that respect, it would be artificial to impose them on these deals. And he continues, the later establishment of provincial boundaries should not be permitted to deprive or impede the right of Aboriginal peoples to effective remedies for alleged violations of these pre-existing rights. As well, the court noted, Quebec courts have jurisdiction over defendants domiciled in the province, and both Rio Tinto and IOC have their head offices in Montreal. And a lawyer that is representing the Innu of Ouachat, Jean-François Bertrand, called the ruling a historic decision, For Indigenous Peoples' Ability to Access Justice. And there's a quote, it's going to have implications for all First Nations in Canada, where their traditional territory covers multiple provinces, he told the Northern Miner in an interview. Before the Supreme Court judgment, if you're a First Nation and your traditional territory was in two provinces, you had to sue in every province. And he says for his clients that speak French, this would have been particularly complicated. And not only would they have to shoulder the cost of lawyers and expert fees twice and bring witnesses twice to testify, but they also would need translators in a Newfoundland court. Yeah, now Rio Tinto, who just came out with their ESG uh, statement that they were going to get to zero emissions by 2050, they're being quite, I think, careful. Uh, they, they said in an emailed statement to the Northern Miner, Rio Tinto... Which was an intervener in the case, said the court's jurisdictional authority was an issue for governments and indigenous groups. Quote The resolution of these jurisdictional issues is principally a matter between the federal and provincial governments and the indigenous communities. We are committed to building and maintaining strong relationships with indigenous peoples in the communities where we operate. sounds like Rio Tinto doesn't want to get into the middle of this, um, particularly as it seems like the decision has been made. There was a dissenting opinion, which is quite interesting, which Kelsey Rolfe quotes. It's Justice Michael Moldivore, and he wrote that the Quebec decision should be overturned and the portions of the lawsuits pertaining to operations in Newfoundland should be struck from the lawsuit quote, Aboriginal rights exist within the limits of Canada's legal system, and Aboriginal rights claims before the courts must not go beyond what is permitted by Canada's legal and constitutional structure, he wrote, saying the decision would have, quote, serious consequences for Canadian federalism. So another powerful argument, these are the laws of the land, and you have to follow them. So... I think it gets to the heart of this whole contentious debate. These aren't black or white issues, but you kind of need black or white decisions, yes and no's, uh, to go with and to to move forward. So hence politics. Now, another part of this story that I glossed over here, but I want to turn back to, because I remember reading it the first time, and it definitely turned my head. And here it is. The ruling will have implications for companies with cross-provincial operations, whose works interact with indigenous traditional territory, he added. Going forward, his clients plan to sue Hydro-Quebec for the utilities' operations on their traditional territories, which, like Rio Tinto and the IOCs, the Iron Ore Company of Canada, span two provinces. So, yeah, I guess Hydro-Quebec is next. So, a pretty interesting article. I highly recommend it. Go to northernminer.com. It's the second or third story. And also, while we are on Rio Tinto, there is a follow-up article uh, to last week's article, which was dealing with Rio Tinto's zero emission target for 2050. And Cecilia Jamazmi from mining.com wrote a story on Rio Tinto's emission targets coming under fire. Rio Tinto's new carbon emissions reduction targets have triggered heated criticism from some investors and environmental groups, with a group led by Friends of the Earth's subsidiary tabling a shareholder motion to improve what it calls, quote, weak climate goals. The world's second largest miner last week vowed to spend $1 billion over the next five years to reduce its carbon footprint and have net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Rio Tinto also set its total Scope 1 and Scope 2 emissions which are indirect emissions from the generation of purchased energy consumed by a company, such as electricity, that they would be 15% lower by 2030 than 2018 levels. The no emissions goal would be easier to achieve for Rio Tinto than other global miners, such as rival BHP, because it does not mine coal or oil. However, they did not set a target on so-called Scope 3 emissions, So we went through this last time, but here's the new stuff. Market Force, a subsidiary of activist investors Friends of the Earth, said the company's announcement is, quote, simply a reflection of business as usual, energy cost savings and efficiency measures. Rio Tinto is essentially telling its shareholders it is aware of a massive financial liability sitting on its books, but it isn't planning to manage that risk down. Executive Director Julien Vincent told FT.com. He noted that Rio Tinto's absolute emissions would have to decline 30% in the next decade, to hit the well below 2 degrees Celsius global pre-industrial levels outlined in the 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change. A UBS analyst, Glenn Lockhock, said the group could almost instantly achieve the 2030 target if it sold or closed its coal-fired alumina refineries and aluminum smelters in Australia. Quote, We couldn't help but notice that the closure of Pacific aluminum alone would reduce emissions by about 25%. Maybe this is the elegant solution to Rio's desire to reduce carbon dioxide, as well as lifting margins within the aluminum business unit. And so, yeah, Rio Tinto, they came out in, uh, you know, last week as strongly in favor of doing something for ESG, but maybe that was a preemptive strike because they're really getting it on all sides here aren't they? So, and maybe it's deserved, maybe it's not. We're simply looking at the story. We're not taking a side on this, but it's definitely noteworthy what's going on with Rio Tinto and this kind of back and forth between the company trying to say it's doing good, and on the other hand, facing lawsuits from indigenous groups and criticisms on its climate policy. And finally, we have a story by Trish Saywell, our senior reporter and acting editor-in-chief. And it's on uh, B of A. Bank of America has cut their GDP forecast and they predict a, quote, mini-recession. I guess you start with a mini-recession and you work your way up to the big recession. There's no sense jumping right to the big recession. But it's interesting, this coronavirus thing, because what's kind of concerning from my perspective, is I see this coronavirus thing as basically putting a sand in the gears of globalism from an economic point of view. And my impression, as say countries like Italy shut down and it becomes more of a problem in the US and in Europe and potentially South America and Africa, and there's still a problem in China, although it sounds like they have it under control, but all the bad stuff that's happened so far All that sand that's getting poured into the engine of the global economy, there seems to be more sand being poured in all the time because now it's like, oh, now, because now the U.S. is starting, the gears are starting to get jammed up. Wherever this virus goes is the sand. And so more and more things are getting jammed. I mean, and I see these GDP forecasts, like you'll hear on financial radio that China's GDP will be reduced from... You know, seven to five point two, and I think to myself, how on earth are they growing in this environment? Another one is earnings on the S and P five hundred will remain basically where they are. Uh, They basically won't keep going up, and I'm thinking to myself, you mean they're not going down? As the global economy kind of grinds to a halt, a supply and a demand shock, and people aren't even saying that they're going to go down now. I'm not a financial analyst, but I do look at stories, and that's more where my expertise is. And I go, that story's a little optimistic from over here. And yes, that is not scientific, but let's see what happens here. So back to our story. The economics team at Bank of America has cut its 2020 global growth forecast to 2.8% while also factoring in a mini-recession. Quote, logistics and supply chains remain an issue. Without normalization, multipliers from fiscal monetary stimulus would be low, Bank of America said in a March 3rd research note. This is from March 3rd, which is a week ago, but you know these days, a week, a lot can happen. But continuing on, let's see what they say. The outbreak of the coronavirus, now called COVID-19, has had a, quote, pronounced impact. For mined commodities, the disease outbreak pushed the copper-gold ratio back to levels last seen during the Great Financial Crisis. China's PMIs, their purchasing manager index, a proxy for demand from the manufacturing sector, fell to 35.7% in February, the report noted. This week's average U.S., China, and Eurozone manufacturing PMIs would justify copper quotations 40% lower year-on-year at $4,200 per ton or $2 per pound. Quite a bit lower than where it is now highlighting how extraordinary the supply shock has been the bank economists wrote in our view prices have not fallen to that level partially over expectations that monetary and fiscal stimulus in both China and the Western world, will ultimately come to the rescue. You know, I think about that, though, and this whole idea of throwing money at the problem. The thing about sickness is, and I recently watched a lecture series, Back to the Great Courses, on the Black Death. And it's the Black Death, the mortality rate was 50%. And I highly recommend that lecture series. I just I watched it all in four days, and it's 24 lectures. It's very interesting. And there are a lot of parallels, such as, you know when somewhere gets sick people leaving and this problems with quarantine and all these things that the word quarantine comes from uh it's an italian word originally to mean 40 days quarantine is so you spend 40 days in quarantine before you go anywhere so again so i just wonder how much throwing money at this problem if nobody wants to go outside how is this money getting spent who's ordering copper parts for their cars if nobody is even really going to work, and they're working from home. Are people going to be building carts? Maybe they will be. But so anyways, continuing, here we go, the next line. But logistics, the report continued, quote, is the key issue and difficult to stimulate away. So that's basically what we were just saying here. And here they continue with logistics. Indeed, as long as logistics and staff attendance in factories have not normalized, the multipliers of any fiscal and monetary support will likely remain low. Bank of America noted that if one uses the OECD's bear case of 1.5% global growth this year, the copper market surpluses would reach 806,000 tons, justifying average 2020 quotations of $4,424 per ton or $2.01 per pound. And so at this point, we forecast a roughly balanced copper market. The authors stated, yet the data highlights that any further downgrades in global activity would increase the supply overhang. To that point, copper would average $5,100 per ton or $2.31 per pound if the global expansion rate fell to 2%. Well, I don't know how they get to penny specifics, $2.31 per pound. So I guess they got to pick a number at some point. And they say the good news is that activity should ultimately recover as the number of COVID-19 cases start to peak, logistics get back to normal, and fiscal and monetary stimulus does its job. And while we broadly reduced near-term forecasts for the base metals, we maintain fourth quarter 2020 expectations with copper prices set to average $6,750 US per ton, worth $3 And six cents per pound. Then, so they are basically in the camp of the either the V or the U-shaped recovery by Q4. The bank also remains bullish on gold, with forecasts of $1,700 per ounce in the fourth quarter. You know, interestingly, in all fairness, this article was written a week ago. We hit $1,700 per ounce yesterday in that big move when the Dow dropped 2,000 points. Uh, Yeah, so they hit their target actually yesterday. And yeah, they maintain a $1,700 per ounce gold price in Q4. Just before we turn to metal prices, let's see what else they have. They have aluminum at $1,786 per ton. And we look at it in pounds, so that's not too helpful for us. For copper, its 2020 price estimates for copper has been lowered to $2.75 per pound from $2.81 per pound. For lead, it's been lowered to $0.87 per pound from $0.91 per pound. For nickel, it's been lowered to $6.63 per pound from $7.88 per pound. And zinc has been reduced to $0.99 per pound from its previous $1.05 per pound. And with that, now let's look at our metal prices. Metal prices. We would like to first thank our friends at Infomind.com that provide us with these prices each and every week. On March 10th, gold is trading at $1,662.74, and that is $64 higher than last week. So, as everything craters, gold has held its own and it's even up on the week. So, that is definitely notable. Silver is at $17.16 per ounce. That is $0.35 higher than last week. Platinum is at $879.01, and that is $29 higher than last week. Palladium is at $2,512.18, $19 lower than last week. So holding its own there. And on March 6th, so our industrial metals, they're going to be slightly out of date with all the big moves yesterday, but this weekly review is a nice contrast from your daily point of view. I think we get some really interesting results. So let's just keep with our weekly thing and not worry too much about having the most recent numbers. So copper on March 6th is... $0.02 higher at $2.55. Aluminum is $0.02 higher at $0.77. Lead is unchanged at $0.85 per pound. Nickel is $0.15 higher at $5.77 per pound. Tin is $0.30 higher at $7.67 per pound. Cobalt is unchanged at $14.97 per pound zinc is at 90 cents per pound which is two cents lower than last week so really facing some heavy winds in the zinc market so those are your metal prices again the industrial metals are a few days off but don't worry about that next week we're going to have a continuation of our weekly look and it should be quite interesting and with that those are your metal prices coming up, we have Mark Bristow's keynote speech from PDAC. And he says the gold industry is facing a production decline. And he goes into detail and he says that Barrick's strategy is to develop tier one mines and prospects. And he also defines what he means by tier one. So he also goes into Barrick's methodology and how a true global mining company needs to have a global presence, as he says, If you want to search for elephants, you have to go into elephant country. He also brings up the importance of ESG. Mining companies have a duty and moral obligation to provide opportunities to communities and to help develop those communities. And he highlights his recent Tanzanian deal as a model that mining companies can use going forward. I hope you enjoy it and we'll see you on the other side.
1: James, and very good morning to you, ladies and gentlemen, this morning. This annual PDAC convention is always a good place to give geologists their due, and uh, and it's particularly important, as James refers to, to talk about this subject when we, as an industry, and I refers particularly to the gold mining industry, are teetering on the brink of a production decline. It's particularly timely to remind the industry that it's geologists and exploration that drive value creation and delivery in our industry. The need to invest in its human capital, as well as the physical activity itself, is pressing, and as I'll show you in this presentation, simply sticking to our geographical comfort zones is not going to produce an adequate return on that exploration investment. I always say, if you're hunting elephants, as the saying goes, you have to venture into elephant country. If you look at gold production per continent... You'll see my point. Global gold production has increased from around 60 million ounces per year in 1990 to peak at more than 100 million ounces in 2018. And it actually has started to decline. You know, there's only so much gold left in the ground. Gold is unique. In that it is a genuinely precious metal the only currency i always say that the politicians can't print its price is cyclical but as this graph shows over time in fact since bretonwood in 1972 it has consistently matched or outperformed all other asset classes that also includes gold equities. The industry hasn't delivered commensurate value. And as an investor, you would have been much better off buying physical gold than shares in some of the mining companies. That's because we failed to invest in exploration. As I'll show you later, that's the only way we create value in this mining industry. Expiration as i said is the engine that drives mining up the value curve powering it from creation to realization discovery and development are still the surest routes to delivery but it's a long and arduous one which demands tenacity of purpose and a long-term commitment how often do you hear chief executives say, "I don't really believe in expiration. I'll just go and do some more M&A." The industry has, in fact, been increasing its expiration spend, but it has little to show for it. That's because it has been investing in safe places. Those comfort zones, which are largely mature and have limited potential. Exploration needs to get off the reservation and back to its pioneering roots if it is to start making major discoveries again. The lack of exploration success has impacted severely on the industry's reserves. Since 2012, the reserves held by the major gold mining companies have shrunk by more than 26% and are now below 2,007 levels. Equally worrying, the reserve grade has also declined. That's why it's generally accepted that the supply of new gold is soon going to start dropping off sharply perhaps by as much as 30% over the next decade. And that's based, this graph is based on the fact that you take all the announced discoveries and projects that are uh, indicated will be a mine one day, and you believe it and you schedule it out. And even with all those dreams, as you know, many of them don't become mines. You still can't even keep the production up At today's level. And as I indicated earlier, 2019, the results so far, it looks everything points to the fact that 2019 new gold mine production declined uh, compared to the 2018 gold production. And this is the first time that we've seen a measured reduction in in new gold production in more than a decade. Barrick plans to buck that trend through a strategy focused on tier one mines and prospects. Just to be clear, we define a tier one asset as one that has a life of at least 10 years with an annual production in excess of 500,000 ounces and costs in the lower half of the industry cost curve. And this map shows where we believe those world-class discoveries will be made. As you can see, many of them are in places that are infrastructurally and geopolitically challenged, to put it mildly. Discovering and developing Tier 1 gold deposits there will require the ability to manage those challenges as well as A substantial investment. Exploration and mine development is a long game and that's why Barrick plays it. But look around the history and you'll see lots of evidence of the short-term thinking that chronically infects the mindset of many investors, mine management, or mining company management, and host governments. As I noted at the outset, organic growth through exploration is the best way to create value. Like the R&D department in a big pharmaceutical company, it requires a unique skill set, creative thinking, the ability to assimilate and interpret complex and very different types of data, and then to pull it all together in a business framework. These days, exploration geologists are, in effect, also brand ambassadors for our companies or their companies. They represent the first contact with the local population and set the tone for an all-important future relationship. This is how Barrick structures its expiration strategy. The process starts with the identification of conceptual targets. These then pass through the layers of research where their potential is rigorously tested. Those targets that do not pass our investment filters Are winnowed out and those that do move up to the apex of the resource triangle. Exploration success is measured not only in primary discoveries but also in the acquisition of early-stage projects where geological skills can add significant value. On both fronts, Barrick and its legacy company, Rangold Resources, have a peerless record. Standout examples of post-acquisition value adding are Goldstruck in Nevada, where exploration has delivered orders of magnitude of additional ounces after the acquisition. And then there's Kibali, where Rangold grew the motto project into a truly tier one gold mine, And this map shows where the two companies went to make their tier one and tier one potential discoveries. It also makes the point that if you aim to be a world-class business in mining, you need to have a global presence. Of course, Exploration is a means to an end. The discovery still has to be converted into a mine, and many of these have failed to live up to expectations. A mine is essentially a heavy industrial enterprise, and building one requires the successful integration of many skills, including design Engineering, procurement, project management, and community engagement. And if the feasibility study was faulted, it's doomed from the start. Randgold got it right in Africa, where it built five mines, three of them world class, each of which was profitable from the very first month of switching on the mill. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, Rangold developed Kibali, now one of Barrick's star performers, in one of the most geographically and geopolitically daunting places in the world. In fact, before we could start fully evaluating the project, We had to build a 180-kilometer road through the the jungle, just to give you sort of a, a vision of this. And what's more, we proved that mining really can make a difference for the better by creating opportunities for countries and people in danger of being left behind by the world. Kabali has created and supported a thriving microeconomy in a region which previously survived on subsistence farming and has brought education, health care, and much improved living standards to the local community. Which brings me to the subject of ESG, which, as you know, stands for environmental social and governance management and is rapidly becoming a major factor in investment decisions since my randgold days i have argued that a good business also has to be a good citizen particularly in emerging countries mining companies have a moral obligation as well as a commercial motivation to help develop economies and uplift people through investment, skills transfer, opportunity creation, and quality of life improvement. If the industry is to survive, that's our industry, in this changing world, we are going to have to recognize and acknowledge our duty to all our stakeholders, and make sure that we benefit and they benefit fairly from the value that we create together with our host countries. Partnerships are the product of a good ESG record. As we think of it, a well-earned license to operate, and not vice versa. How I'd like to use the example of Rand Gold again, which successfully built and ran world class mines in Africa for over 20 years until its merger with Barrack. Thanks to the productive partnership we forged with the governments of our host countries, we overcame the many challenges presented by remote locations, a lack of infrastructure, a shortage of skills, and even the occasional outbreaks of civil war and political change. We were also able to settle differences over tax and other issues with the authorities amicably. Barrick's recently concluded framework agreement with the Tanzanian government is, I believe, a model of the kind of partnership the industry should seek, especially in emerging countries. It created, amongst other things, a joint venture in which the government could participate in board oversight of barracks, mines in Tanzania, and a transparent mechanism for equitably sharing the benefits created by those mines. It's worth noting that we already have such or similar participation by our host governments in Mali, the Côte d'Ivoire, and the DRC. Recognizing the rights of all stakeholders is the future of mining in emerging countries and regions where the new discoveries are waiting to be found. And unless we have the courage and the commitment one, to invest in geologists, two, encourage them to go into those regions where there are opportunities to find elephants, we're going to continue to lose as an industry. Thank you very much for your attention, and James, I'd be happy to take questions.
0: Thank you for listening to this edition of the Northern Minor Podcast. You know, there were protesters at some point during Bristow's presentation there, but it never got through. I think it's because we were directly plugged into the soundboard. Otherwise, uh, it would have been great to have that just for a little drama. But there you have it. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. We have more keynotes coming up. you have a great week, and yeah, stay calm out there with all these markets. Just relax, have a coffee, look around, go for a walk. Until next week, take care.